welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a brand new podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me today is... Alex's dad, Sean Baker, Dr. Sean Baker of the U.S. Naval Academy. And today we're going to be talking about the 2016 film Arrival. Remember, it was funny because I, I saw this movie in theaters when it came out, and it was interesting, just a few months before it came out, you had another alien invasion film, the long-belated sequel to Independence Day. And it's just interesting. Both films are about aliens coming to Earth. Yeah. And just both one film handles it in very just kind of a dumb sort of blockbuster way. And what I like about this film, this film takes that, you know, and it, it takes how, how would we go about this? How They're not just like flying saucers ready to wipe us out. They're here. We don't know why. How are we going to find out what their intention is? And, you know, they t- it's it's a very methodical, it's very slow pace, but that's why I like about it, because it isn't just flying saucers. There's actual, like, going about this you know, yeah. government way. It's, it, it's actually a tale of a contact of two cultures, mm-hmm. right? And I like the, I like the uh, analogy it, they draw a couple of times in the film, between the contact of two cultures of the between European cultures and Native American cultures, there was a lot of ambiguity and in interpretation and in, in uh, motivations on both sides, as well as some issues with uh, uh, difficulties in translating uh, in language, and they they actually do that with these uh, aliens in this film same way. They, the classic or the not the classic, but the kind of one of the central questions in the film is what exactly do they mean by the word weapon? Mm-hmm. And we don't find out until the very end of that film that what they're actually trying to say is something like, uh, we're giving you a tool that will be very useful useful for you. And in a way, it's a bit anticlimactic, right, at the end of mm-hmm. the film. You're thinking, wow, this is going to be some kind of neat gizmo. It's going to be able to do some incredible things. Well, it's actually their language. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and that is supposed to be the tool that will help us human beings deal with some relatively unspecified issue in the future. Yeah, well, I believe what they say is, um, what the heptapods say to Louise, Amy Adams, they say that we need you to know this because 3,000 years from now, we're going to need your help. Yes. So it's something that... It's a trade, though, because they're talking about trade, and that also comes up. They want that that help 3,000 years from now, but they're also saying, hey... You'll be more willing to give us that help if we give you this language because it'll help you in the nearer yeah, term in for some your way. Problems too. Right. Yeah, yeah. Exactly right. Yeah, and it's, well, I remember, I think I was watching one video and they were talking about it's what this movie, do, going back to what we talked about earlier, is what it doesn't do. There are 12 landings. It's not just your typical, they land in DC or they land in New York City yeah. or if, like they land in Tokyo or any large metropolitan. It's like a random like right. rural area in Montana or some. It just not even land like one of them are just off the coast of China and yep. they go you know and they say they can't find any correlation to it and the big joke was oh 12 of these places a Sheena Easton song was big you know back in 1981 so we really don't know what we're dealing with here <laughs> and even just the typical alien look like it's not at the ship you know you're thinking of the saucer it's like this it looks like a rock almost like the rock you skip across the water you're gonna laugh but the first thing i thought of was that thing look looks like a half used soap bar a really yeah. dirty half used soap bar but yes mm-hmm. yes and you know it, it actually i think shows um that 
Mr. Chang thought about this when he wrote the story. Um, because if you're thinking kind of strategically and you're the aliens coming to Earth, you don't, you don't want to appear over Washington airspace. That's probably not a wise idea, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So, you, so you, you appear out in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the country. They'll still send people to deal with you. And that's really all they wanted was to actually do this kind of strange trade. Um, so you'll, you'll still get contact with the various Earth governments by doing so. So mm-hmm. it actually shows they're pretty, he was pretty smart thinking, as it were, yeah. strategically for those aliens. Well, now that you're bringing it up, we do want to point out that this, the movie was based on a, the short story, Story of Your Life by Ted Chang. Um, he goes, it, it's pretty much, even though it's like 50 pages long, it's the movie and the short story really go well together. They're pretty much follow along. This isn't like Kubrick and The Shining where they do something completely different. But yeah. um, there is more there of a difference. I know in the in the story there's more detail about the physics because I remember the guy who's played, you know, the character played by Jeremy Renner, he's talking about a light refraction in the story and how that helps them understand the physics of heptapods. And I noticed in the movie they didn't really talk about yeah. that at all. Yeah, but most of the science I don't really think they went into much, and I think that's probably a wise move for the movie um, because the movie basically tries to cash in a, a, not a science idea so much. Although if you if you look at Mr. Chang's notes at the end of the story, Ted Chang's mm-hmm. notes, he, he 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 it's neat. In his books, he'll give you little snippets of what he was thinking of, what he was basing things on, and he does try to explain some kind of quantum mechanical basis yeah, even for the graph. I remember. Yeah, and you know what? Uh, being the squishy liberal arts philosophy guy, uh-huh. I just uh, I you know okay yeah. Naval Academy midshipmen might be able to understand some of this stuff. They're science geeks, but not me. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of liked that they didn't go with that. Yeah. Instead, they went with squishy liberal arts stuff again. Something called the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, which is a hypothesis about uh, the influence of language on essentially how you conceptualize and carve up the universe. And they do a very interesting job of working with that so I, I think that was a wise move it's a little more comprehensible yeah for the movie going audience most of them anyway yeah well it's interesting because they when they first bring that up and he's like even dreaming heptapod and it's the scene when she's she's almost she's hallucinating that there's a heptapod creature right next to her yeah which is funny if you've seen this director's another movie enemy came out a few years earlier there's this imagery of a spider and at the not spoiler alert but the movie ends with he walks in the room and there's this giant spider looking at him so it, it reminds so if you watch <laughs> enemy i watched enemy before i watched arrival and i was like oh look at look there, at him doing there that he again. goes again yeah yeah yep. going back to what you were talking about the difficulty of language and communication you've been talking about with european and native americans one of the things she talks about was the story of the kangaroo how when captain cook first discovered australia they saw the kangaroo creatures, but they didn't have a name for them. And then they asked the Aborigines, what is that? And they said kangaroo. And little do they know that kangaroo wasn't the name for it, but kangaroo just means I don't know what you're talking about. Even though she's later revealed that, well, actually, I just made that up, but yeah. it helps prove my point. Yes, and that, that is a good point. Um, and th- th- this brings up a very interesting thing. Of, I think the central uh, uh, 
thing about this movie and its relationship to that superior wharf hypothesis it, it, the the premise behind the movie is that time or history is actually quite unlike we take it to be and the idea seems to be that we take it to be linear uh i don't remember who actually did the quote it's a funny quote but uh somebody asked this person to define history and they said well it's just one damn thing after another that's what it is so and that's kind of a, a general description of how we take time to be right you know you, you you've got to you've got to kind of a present and and things come into being uh from the future through the present and then there are kind of residuals left in the past and it seems to be uh, Chang's uh, idea here is that we conceptualize time that way because our language is linear, serial. Mm -hmm. We uh, uh, string words together in, in you know, long uh, sentences and paragraphs and whole books, right? Yeah. And uh, scan from left to right or right to left or up and down depending on your language. And as a result, that's the feel, as it were, we, we get for time. But his idea is that the heptapods, because they have a completely different language, uh, they experience an aspect of time that we can't experience. Uh, well, not quite can't, because after all, Amy Adams eventually, or Louise actually ends up experiencing time uh, as they do. And connection to the superior wharf hypothesis is to is, is their language or their written language is not serial in nature it's not linear mm -hmm. you have these kind of circular um symbols right mm -hmm. and a circular symbol might stand for somebody like louise right and then uh, around the uh, uh periphery of that symbol are various uh, outcroppings and and sketches and things like that and depending on what quadrant the uh, the little mark is in, it will indicate maybe a, a property of Louise, a, that she's female, for instance, or an action she's undertaken, or a relationship she has. And if you are conversant enough in this language and look at one of these symbols, especially if it's a pretty densely imbricated one, you would be able to grasp the entire story of Louise's life in one glance, right? Yeah. So the picture of time there contrasted with ours, I, I like this analogy and then I'll shut up. Um, but we're, our view of time uh, is kind of like a, a phonograph stylus's view of the song it's playing, right? It's at one particular part in the groove maybe two or three uh, minutes into the song, uh -huh. right? And it experiences that song in this normal serial fashion that we do when we listen to music. Um, but there is another view. If you were able to take an overhead shot of the phonograph record and you were able to somehow comprehend what the uh, grooves, the shapes of the grooves symbolized, you'd be able to take in the entire song in an instant or the entire album in an instant, yeah. right? So the heptapods, that's how they view time. Time is, all of history, as it were, has already occurred. That's not quite the right way to put it, but it's already set in stone, so to speak. It's kind of like this 
history of the universe is this big block, right? And we're kind of traversing tracks through the block, but all of the events are already there, so to speak. So very interesting view. And how they use that concept of time, the heptapods, it really leads into what I thought really works well for the movie. And this is going to get into spoiler alert. We haven't gotten to spoilers, but this is for spoil heavy spoilers right now. But <laughs> at the very beginning, you see a montage of events and just you're just automatically assume that it's a set in the past. But as you're going on and then there comes a great twist reveal, then you realize that events are set in the future. Right. And then that comes down to one of the biggest decisions Louise has to make is that, so once again, spoiler alert, we can't stress that enough, but she realizes that after the events of the, with the aliens, she goes on and marries the Ian, the doctor, the her partner, which she was working with, and they have a daughter. And knowing, but not only that, but the daughter dies very young due to some sort of rare disease. And she, she knowing, she knows what's going to happen. She tells Ian they divorce because he thinks she made the wrong decision and he didn't like the fact that he didn't, she didn't tell him. And then the daughter, she raises the daughter alone, the daughter eventually dies. But she knows that and she still goes ahead with it anyway. She says, I embrace, I know, even knowing everything that comes, I still welcome it and embrace it. And that comes down to what I think is, is that her making the decision, knowing what's going ahead and still going ahead anyway, or was it? Is she always making that decision with time? Is she always going to that's the, say, that's the, that's a million dollar one of the million dollar questions with this film? Because mm-hmm. um, uh, she she has a line there uh, when at kind of the climactic part of the film where she says uh, she asks, I think it's Ian. I think I'm. If you knew exactly what was going to happen to the last detail in your life, would you choose to live it again? Right? Yeah. And that does have the implication that there is a freedom of choice. But there's a conflict there between that picture and the pic- the metaphysical picture mm-hmm. of time that the, the film seems to be relying on. You could quite you easily say that Louise really has no choice. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so... That's a million-dollar question in the history of philosophy. Uh, uh, if time is actually, uh, in some sense or another, already set in stone, do we really have choices? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it doesn't sound as science fiction as it as it as it, as it uh, uh, could be, because um, if you think about it, we do. We, we do uh, have a notion that um, things that, that we don't know right now uh, about the future are true, right? So example I always use is um, back in 1941, December 7th, 1941, uh, you, ha- you have to ask yourself, was it true then, uh, you know, if I put this sentence in front of you, uh, Imperial Japan will uh, surrender on September 2nd on the battleship Missouri in Tokyo Bay, right? Mm-hmm. If I asked you in 1941 whether that statement was true or not, you'd have no way of knowing. But in fact, it was. It was a true statement. So we have, that's a very common uh 
you know, kind of experience there, sentences that end up being true. We didn't know at the time. So in a way, you, you have to ask yourself, well, what is it about the universe that's kind of reaching back into 1941 and making that sentence about 1945 true? Uh, hey, you know, the metaphysical picture of time that the uh, heptapods seem to have a good grip on, mm -hmm. that gives you one answer, right? But then it does, it does lead to that series of questions about free will. Well, gee whiz, there's a whole host of choices that led to 1945, September 2, Tokyo Bay. Um, were they all determined? I don't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but that is, that, is the, uh, that is the metaphysical picture this, this movie does rely on. Yeah. If, to getting into maybe one part of the movie that I, I would like some clarification. So, so they're, they're giving us this gift of their language. And yeah. once we understand it, our view of time will be like theirs. And one of the things I'm wondering is, so it's not just Louise who's going to have this. So I'm wondering if down the road, Ian will understand, you know, is going to understand the language. So won't he also see the events of what happens with them getting a divorce and his daughter dying yeah. very young? And not only that, but I, maybe because she's, she was very young, but would the daughter also yeah. understand the language? Because wouldn't that mean she would also know that she was going to die very young? And it, it, it makes me wonder because... Everybody's having this, but I was wondering if in that situation, Ian could also see ahead. We just, we just see that Louise understands yeah. this language. We don't really see anyone else in the world getting a grasp of it. Even yeah. like when we see the Chinese um, general. Yeah. It seems that this is it's set months after he's giving her the um, phone number that'll kind of set everything in motion. But even he says, I don't really know how your mind works. So I'm right. wondering, so he hasn't really understood that yet. Yeah. Or is, is, she, is no one else really fully able to grasp what she has yet? I, I think that, yes, I think you're right. And I, I, probably the explanation Ted Chang would give is, well, she's so thoroughly immersed in linguistics that she is able to understand this um, alternate uh, linguistic system, I guess. And that, that's what allows her to tap in. Um, but yeah, you don't have any indicators that the daughter, I mean, other than just kind of meaningful looks and things like that doesn't... You know, what you, you know, this classic film, you can read into uh, looks by mm -hmm. actors a, a lot, even if it's not said. And sometimes that is just price precisely what it is, just reading things in. Um, but yeah, it appears to be she's the only one. Although it looks like she's going to make an effort here to educate other people because there's that. Yeah, she scene, has a book. She's, yeah. she's written a book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe that's the uh, just speculating here, of course, but maybe that's the purpose in the, the visit is they want to make. They want to make sure uh, humanity as a whole eventually acquires this um, uh, view of time that they have. Uh, I don't know. That's a great question. Yeah. yeah. So and it's not really addressed in the short story either. It does seem there, again, that she's the only person that's kind of uh, absorbed this and internalized it. You know, once again, they're saying it's you know, 3,000 years from now we're going to need your help, but not like 10 years from now we're going to need your help. So I'm assuming that... You know, it's not. It's going to take a while for you to understand it, but once you get it, you're going to be able to. It, you know, your civilization. I'm assuming they want your civilization to advance with technology, and then three thousand years from now, when we need your help, you're going to be so technologically advanced due to our understanding of time that you're going to be able to, you know, yeah, save our planet or whatever, the, whatever, yeah, whatever the I mean, issue is. Yeah. It's so, of course, they they know all of this is going to happen anyway, right? Yeah. <laughs> so we're getting close to the. Uh, 
end of our questions here. Is there, before we go, is there anything else that I haven't brought up that you want to bring up now? Nothing. I mean, I can always harp on the superior wharf hypothesis again. Uh, um, they don't talk about it too much, but it, it was a, a kind of an anthropological mm-hmm. principle in the 40s and a linguistic principle. And the, the apparent example turned out there's a lot of controversy over whether it was in fact true. It was supposed to be a, a, a truth about Inuits and their languages. And the fact that they use a set of words to describe snow in different conditions that make you, and, and they would behave this way too, make you believe that they believe these were actually different substances, completely different substances. So uh, uh, the idea was that th- that way of thinking was so ingrained in them that they, they would have a very difficult time understanding our idea that, hey, it's just one substance. Snow is snow, darn it, right? And we tend to uh, describe the different types of snow with, with adjectives, right? Mm-hmm. Crunchy snow, slushy snow, compacted snow, so forth. And, and they had completely different words for those. They didn't have the word snow or something like it in common. Um, well, basically, that, that ended up being kind of a, a, a hoax, according to some later anthropologists. It wasn't actually the case. But I still think the, the, there's some merit in the, in the, in the theoretical underpinning. Um, the way our language functions, it does at least lead us very heavily into thinking certain things uh, and, and carving up the world in certain ways when, when in fact, uh, maybe later we would discover it's not quite carved up that way. And there's a, 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 lot, a lot of the history of philosophy is, is, is precisely that, getting over the uh, influence of kind of the presuppositions built in, into our language. And so uh, I also just want to bring up, this is directed by Denis Villeneuve. I just need to give a shout out because he's probably one of my favorite directors today. If I have my way, we'll probably be talking more about his movies. He did Blade Runner 2049. He did Sicario, Prisoners, um, Enemy. So he's done some really good movies. And for those in all have lots of interesting uh, themes and uh, philosophical ideas. So check more of his movies out if you like this one. Just want to give that a shout out. All right, and I think that is a marching orders for me. Um, good, good thing about doing this show with my uh, mm-hmm. son here is he's really the movie geek in the family. I mean, I teach a course, but I use the same movies over and over again, right? Uh, so th- this is a great project. It's forcing me to watch these movies. So okay, we'll have okay. to we'll have to <laughs> do that. All right. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. Until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Saying so long and be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies.